The research that we are looking at today calls pelvic floor dysfunction a significant and neglected public health issue. And I have to say that my story and the story of many women that I know backs that up. Unfortunately, in the research today, we'll just see some disheartening information, specifically that despite pelvic floor dysfunction impacting around 25% of women here in the U.S., there is a profound lack of understanding of the disorder and how to treat it. The good news is that occupational therapists are perfectly poised to help meet the needs of pelvic health patients, and we'll use today's research to jumpstart our understanding of pelvic rehab. And then to help us dive deeper, it is just my pleasure to welcome on Lindsay Vestal of The Functional Pelvis. Lindsay is truly a pioneer in promoting OT's role in pelvic health, and she will discuss her own practice providing pelvic floor rehab in people's homes. And at the end, you'll get to hear us talk about the future of OT's role in public health, including trends that you should be watching. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into pelvic health, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. As of the recording of this podcast, it is just $49 to sign up for the club. And in there, you'll be able to take a test and generate a certificate of completion for completing this podcast. But bearing in mind that this could count as a continuing education course, I wanted to explicitly state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the occupations most commonly impacted by pelvic floor dysfunction, notably the ones that you can address in your treatment. And secondly, you will be able to describe what an OT evaluation of pelvic floor dysfunction can entail. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we'll bring on Lindsay to discuss how it applies to your practice. The article that we're looking at today is called Pelvic Floor Dysfunction After Childbirth, Occupational Impact and Awareness of Available Treatment. It comes to us from the journal OTJR, Occupation Participation in Health, and it was published in the year 2020. So the journal begins with an overview of the pelvic floor and pelvic floor dysfunction. So as a reminder to OTs, the pelvic floor is composed of three layers of muscle and connective tissue. And it is designed to support the functions of the bladder, the rectum, and the female reproductive system. Both men and women have a pelvic floor, and all genders can experience dysfunction of the pelvic floor. And pelvic floor dysfunction occurs when you have difficulty coordinating the pelvic floor muscles. And this can result in pelvic pain, urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, and pelvic organ prolapse. This article that we're looking at specifically focuses on pelvic floor dysfunction in women, and it tells us that approximately 25% of women in the U.S. have at least one pelvic floor disorder, which is just honestly a crazy high percentage. But what's even more baffling is even though there are plenty of treatment options for pelvic floor dysfunction, such as surgery, pelvic floor rehab, and lifestyle modifications, previous studies have indicated that there is simply an overall lack of understanding of both pelvic floor dysfunction and its treatment options, which leads us to this paper. The authors sought to look at pelvic floor dysfunction from an occupational therapy lens. They wanted to know a couple of things for women who had experienced pelvic floor dysfunction after childbirth. They wanted to know what was the impact of pelvic floor dysfunction on occupations, how severely did it impact their daily lives, and what was the level of awareness of treatment options. So what were the author's methods for studying this? They had a pretty simple study design as it involved the distribution of an online survey. Inclusion criteria included women 18 to 45 who had given birth to at least one child and who lived in the United States. 
The survey that the authors created had 31 questions, all on a four-point scale, and there was one qualitative question. The survey was distributed to organizations, associations, and Facebook groups that supported women following the birth of a child. So what were the results of this study? 224 eligible participants completed at least a portion of the survey. And to be honest, I would have liked to have seen the results laid out a little more clearly, but I'm going to do my best to summarize them for you. And just so you know, these results I'm reading, I converted them all into percentage points. The articles reported them in a couple different ways, but I thought it was easier just to hear them all in the same way. So the first thing that they looked at was pelvic floor symptoms that were experienced. I'm just going to read through all of these. There's about eight of them, um, just because I think it's really important for us to hear. So 69% of the survey participants said that they experienced leakage of urine with movement. 53% reported pain during sexual intercourse. 50% reported urgency to use the bathroom. 44% reported pain near their hips or abdominals. 40% reported feeling as if they still had to urinate after using the restroom. 13% reported feelings of heaviness, bulging, or pressure in the vaginal area. 8% reported leakage of stool. And 7% said they were unable to control bowel movements. For the pelvic floor symptoms that had the most impact on the participants' day, I'm just going to read the first top three for us. 37% of people said that leakage of urine with movement was the symptom that had the most impact on their day. 17% said pain near their hips or abdominals, and 11% said pain during sexual intercourse. Some other numbers that stood out about the symptoms was that 55% of patients said that their symptoms had been going on for a year or longer, and 60% said that they had not had any rehabilitative or surgical treatment for their symptoms. The next section of results focus on the impact of daily activities. And here I'm just going to read the top four most impacted activities. 54% said that sexual activity was impacted. 58% said exercise was impacted, 33% said self-care was impacted, and 29% said that care for children was impacted. And then the last section of results was on the level of awareness. And they didn't give enough information to break this down into percentage points, but they did say that the majority had indicated that they had never received information regarding pelvic floor rehab as an option. And of the small percentage that did receive information, 18 people said that they received that from their OB or their gynecologist. 15 people said that they found it from the internet. And 20 people said that they found their information from family or friends. And the one last thing that I wanted to highlight was only four participants who responded to the survey had said that they attended OT for their pelvic floor dysfunction. So what did the authors discuss and conclude from this research? The author said that the results indicated that pelvic floor dysfunction after childbirth may hinder a woman's ability to fully engage in meaningful occupations. As I just mentioned in the result, the two areas that were the most impacted were sexual activity and exercise. And despite this reported impact on daily life, over half of the participants reported seeking no treatment and only a small percentage of treatment came from a medical provider. The lack of reporting signs and symptoms to their medical provider suggests that women may be undereducated about treatment options. And just my own two cents, I thought it was particularly telling that women learned about treatment options more from their family or friends than they did from their doctors. So the authors end with calling for more research and advocacy in the field of OT to increase the public's awareness of pelvic floor rehabilitation. So there is a lot to discuss here, and I just want to jump right in to my discussion with Lindsay Vestal. Lindsay is the founder of The Functional Pelvis, the first in-home pelvic health practice in New York City run by an occupational therapist. She has helped thousands of people overcome chronic pelvic health challenges like incontinence and pelvic pain. Her goal is to empower women and men to listen to the wisdom of their own bodies without resorting to invasive surgeries or prescription drugs so they can heal and get back to enjoying life. Through the functional pelvis, Lindsay also teaches AOTA-approved courses on how to specialize in pelvic health and how to start your own private pay business. 
And as a financial disclosure, I want to say that Lindsay, of course, has a vested interest in her courses and her content, but we here at OT Potential have no financial connection to those. So without further ado, I will patch Lindsay onto our podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Lindsay. It's great to have you. Oh, Sarah, I am so happy to be here. I've been so looking forward to talking about this topic, the pelvic floor therapy. I feel so lucky that this is a kind of therapy that I've been able to experience. I got to see a pelvic floor therapist after one of my pregnancies, and I just feel lucky that I knew about it. And part of the reason I knew about it was because I know you, and you introduced it to me so early back when we were in OT school together. And so I know I had this awareness that definitely the general public doesn't have, but many OTs also didn't know about this area. I was wondering if you could start us off by just telling us the story of how you found both OT and pelvic floor therapy. I would love to. And I also just want to mention that the research article that we're going to be talking about today really eloquently highlights exactly what you just said, Mm -hmm. which is in general, the public isn't aware that these are issues that can be helped and that their quality of life can be vastly improved. Mm -hmm. So for me, I found out about pelvic floor therapy actually because of an experience my dad had. So my dad was diagnosed with both bladder and prostate cancer which led him to urinary urgency, which is the need to pee very often, and it comes on rapid fire unexpectedly, and urinary incontinence, which is when you leak urine unexpectedly, when it's not convenient. And this is well before I applied to graduate school. And I watched my dad go from being this very gregarious, outspoken person, very socially active, to being really withdrawn, which unfortunately is a very common experience Mm -hmm. for someone with these issues. Social isolation is really one of the, the top things that we see when someone's experiencing this. So, you know, at the time I was like, there's gotta be something we can do about this. There are muscles down there, aren't there? aren't there? (laughs) And so come to find out there's actually 14 muscles down there, three layers worth. And once I discovered that, I found a pelvic floor therapist in my dad's state of Arizona and he started going and it was such a joy to see me get my dad back Mm -hmm. in, you know, a pretty straightforward, basic rehabilitation way. The same way I saw him do when he had his knee replacement just years before. So it was a it was a personal experience that really led me to this and something that really inspired me. And the way I found OT is also really interesting because I set out to apply to PT school because like perhaps many of your listeners, I didn't know anything about OT. It's not the household name that PT is. And so I was shadowing at a physical therapy center and one day the PT that I had been shadowing with called in sick. And so the director said, listen, this is a great opportunity to see what different disciplines do and how we all collaborate together. Do you want to go with a speech therapist or an occupational therapist? And sort of the the curiosity geek in me was like, well, I know what speech does, but I what's OT? Tell I want to know about this. So at this particular session, the OT was working on a client who had experienced a stroke and they were working on memory skills. And I was completely astounded. This profession could bridge the mind and the body. And at this point in time, for me, an alarm bell went off and I was like, wow, how much different would that have experienced been? As wonderful as it was to see what my dad went through with a PT, how could this lens coming from this biopsychosocial approach, this really sort of like body holistic aware approach, how could that more favorably impact my dad's experience, and anyone else going through pelvic floor dysfunction. So for me, it was a major pivot point, and I withdrew my applications to PT school and started applying to OT school, and the rest is history, Sarah. Wow, that's just such an amazing story, and I love how it starts with just that really personal experience with your dad and seeing the really personal effect that the pelvic floor dysfunction had on him, because that's something I was thinking about as I was reading this article, just how I keep using the word personal, but intimate and 
scary to talk about in front of people these issues are. I guess that's a perfect segue just into getting your initial impressions of this article. I was wondering what you were thinking as you were reading it. Mm -hmm. Number one, I love that it's a research article on the pelvic floor because Mm -hmm. while more and more are coming out, when I first started in this over a decade ago, there weren't that many. But number two, this particular article highlights occupational therapy, which I am just overjoyed about. Mm -hmm. So that is very unique. And actually, one of the co-contributors is a former OT pioneer, which is the online course that I have. So wow. I'm extremely excited to see her contribution there. And there are a couple of things that I just want to highlight that really stood out to me as I was working my way through the article. Number one, it talked about the lack of education presented to women regarding the available treatment and the available rehab options for pelvic floor therapy, which has been identified as a very large neglected public health issue. Mm -hmm. The second thing that really stood out to me were the symptoms associated with pelvic floor dysfunction, negative impact, the following occupations. So we have self-care, we have sexual activity, managing a home, rest and sleep, work, leisure, social participation, all of these things are hindering a woman's ability to fully engage in meaningful activities. And I don't know about you, but this just screams OT to me, Mm -hmm. right? Every single thing about this, all of these areas that have such a negative impact are all ways that occupational therapists can weave in our incredibly unique perspective into helping them improve their quality of life. And then lastly, the article talked about the emotions that people who experience pelvic floor dysfunction experience, which are embarrassment, Mm -hmm. fear of intimacy, fear of exercise and movement, and a real sense of self-consciousness and self-editing. These clients, in my experience, are incredibly, incredibly ready and are self-motivated. And so one of the reasons why I adore working with this population is just how incredibly motivated they are once they find us and once they experience our approach to being able to empower them. Yeah, there are so many things I want to touch on that you just said, and I think we'll get to a lot of them. I wanted to start with the, you mentioned at the beginning, just that this is a significant public health issue. The article said that, and that stood out to me. And I wanted to just dig a little deeper into your thoughts on that, just the numbers of people that are out there. And why is this a neglected public health issue? I was kind of shocked in one of my visits after my child was born when I was having these issues. I definitely had to be the one who was like, this is what I'm having. Here's who I want to go see. And I had an awesome doctor. Why didn't she know where to refer me to? I know that's kind of a big question, but why is this a neglected public health issue, do you think? So I want to start by saying that the article that we're reviewing specifically has to do with pelvic floor dysfunction after Mm. childbirth. And my company, The Functional Pelvis, deals specifically, specializes specifically in pre- and postnatal people. But I I do have to say that pelvic floor dysfunction applies to Mm. all ages, all genders. You know, there's pediatric pelvic floor therapists. There are, you know, therapists that specialize specifically in people who identify as male. I mean, it runs the gambit, but I'm going to really speak to the pre and postnatal communities because of the title of this article and also because of the area that my experience is in. And and so to to get back to your question, you know, our amazing practitioners, whether they're OBGYNs or midwives, you know, they have this incredible specialty to care for us through the time we know we're pregnant, through the time we have our baby. Unfortunately, that's where their area of expertise often stops. And I've spoken to a lot that agree with me on this topic and the ones that are a little bit more proactive about the next steps, and that's sort of what we call continuity of care or continuum of care, are the ones that are going to seek out, well, 
maybe I should, maybe this is an appropriate referral for pelvic floor therapy. In France, you know, women, once they've experienced certain criteria, such as forceps or vacuum delivery, have a second or third degree tear, are automatically given referrals. So mm. hopefully one day that similar structure will, will find its way across more countries than just France. And when I, in terms of the numbers, in the article, it talks about how 50% of participants in this study indicated that they had urinary incontinence symptoms. So those are those symptoms where we have involuntary loss of urine. And they were unlikely to report it to a medical professional for three to 10 years. It's <laughs> crazy. Three to 10 years. And on average, this isn't in this particular article, but most of our clients have gone through at least seven medical providers before they find us. So they, they were significantly undereducated on their treatment options. They were living with unresolved issues that absolutely could be treated. And according to this article, 25% of women in the U.S. have at least one pelvic floor dysfunction. And that number is expected to grow exponentially, reaching 43.8 million by the year 2050. Hmm. That's so many people and just tugs at my heart so much because it's such a preventable problem. And all these numbers that I read really like match up just what I see anecdotally in my world, like in the women that I know and that fear of talking to health providers about that, or just not even knowing that that's something that you can talk to your health provider about. And then maybe if you do, maybe your health provider doesn't know where to send you. I want to pivot a little bit to your practice. I know that you have practiced both in New York and then here in France. And part of what I was curious about was how people did end up finding you. Like, what were you talking to providers and getting referrals that way? Were you ranking organically? Like if there is this problem where people aren't educated, how did they end up finding you? An amazing question. One of my very favorite things to talk about because there's not that much public awareness for OTs and there's certainly next to, to almost known public awareness when it comes to pelvic floor issues. So I'm sort of a double mm, unicorn yeah. <laughs> and then I have a private practice that is occupational therapy based in pelvic floor dysfunction. So in New York City and in Paris, you know, we've had an interesting trajectory. In the first year in business, it was crickets. It was crickets because our approach was to go directly to the referring parties. And I was so proud, you know, just kind of walking in ready to chat with anyone and everyone that would listen about what I do and how I did it. And sometimes it was successful, but mostly it was not. And that was just my experience. Now I do mentor and offer an online course for occupational therapists who want to start their own private pay practice. And it's not exclusive to pelvic floor therapy. And I will say that most of those students have had a similar experience to where going directly to the referring provider wasn't the most impactful. Now, the second year I started offering community workshops and these were not with the intention of making money. It was nice when it happened, but I basically wanted to get my base expenses covered. So my rental space, I often brought, you know, tea and snacks to these meetings. So if I got my base expenses covered, it was successful. And here's why my approach was that way. I was planting seeds. I was getting the information out there in the community. I was sharing my perspective. And again, I felt very unique in the sense that there were physical therapists in New York City that were, you know, very, very prolific and had a good reputation. I was the only and the first occupational therapist to do this. And so I was really proud of this kind of whole body, holistic biopsychosocial approach that really took into account the ability to you know, use roles, habits, and routines in my sessions, which is incredibly impactful when you think about all of those areas that we talked about, such as self-care, managing a home, rest and sleep. I mean, come on, all of those things that we talked about, social participation is just such in our wheelhouse. And so I loved planting those seeds. I loved getting in front of and building awareness 
to the, you know, ideal client and whether or not they came to me or one of my competitors, I was just smitten with being able to spread the word. And so eventually by the third year is when we really started to see an impact because clients started to come to see us, word of mouth took off. And those same clients were going back to some of those doctors that I met with that first year. The doctor's like, that name sounds familiar. (laughs) And then I was getting referrals from them because they had a vetted, you know, cheerleader saying, I've been to this person. It was an awesome experience. And so our business really started to take off. And I'm proud to say that we don't do any marketing. It is all 100% word of mouth based, which is extremely possible in a private pay business. When you offer preeminent service, which you know is something that I think as OTs, sometimes we're a little bit shy about the word marketing and sales. But the thing is, our background is in building relationships. Mm-hmm. We excel at building rapport and connection. And if you think of marketing as just a different way to do that, we're actually one of the best marketers in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see word of mouth being so powerful in this area. And the article backed that up that the most common place that people were getting information was from their friends. And that makes me sad about the providers that they weren't as quick to send those referrals as they were learning about it. But you're also like, they're changing their habit and routines. And that wasn't something that they were used to talking about. So that makes sense to me that they didn't flip on a dime and you have these highly motivated clients to solve this problem that they're having. So that makes sense that they were kind of the prime mover in getting your practice off the ground. So there's some clients who are getting educated, they're getting into your door. And can you just walk me through what an eval looked like? I know that you were seeing patients in their home. So you come in and what happens from there? (laughs) So already we were remarkably different in the sense that we were seeing them in their home. All the other practices in town, you know, were, were brick and mortar outpatient clinics. So we'd walk into their home and immediately we're taking in all this information that is going to quickly help us put together a really functional, incredibly customized program. So for example, because I was seeing people postnatally most often, right? I'm I'm walking into already the mother either nursing or bottle feeding their baby in their favorite chair in exactly the posture they're probably doing it, you know, 22 hours of the day. I'm already mm-hmm. getting information about posture and positioning that is already feeding into the conversation. Okay. So we start, so our evaluations are 90 minutes long. First 45 minutes are about rapport building. It's about goal setting. It's it's hearing their birth story. It's connecting to them and helping them feel comfortable. They're about to open up about some of the most sensitive, tender issues of their life that they're not often even talking with their partners or their closest friends about, let alone their practitioner. So I'm really establishing that connection and that confidence, right? That they are leading the way, that I am there to guide them with them as experts to their body. So I am also weaving in a ton of education around the pelvic floor since it's not something that most of us know about. All of our responsibilities and functions of the pelvic floor happen behind closed doors, right? Mm -hmm. Intimacy, elimination, these are all things that are private. And so educating around what's optimal is where we start. So they understand sort of what the objective is, right? So a quick example is it's optimal to pee once every two to four hours. So already we're starting to go, oh, well, I have a client who's going every 30 minutes, or I can't sit through a movie without getting up twice. You know, we're already starting to realize that there's something to understand there. And weaving in some basic concepts around breath, because the pelvic floor and the breath are sort of the the main foundational components. They communicate with one another. They also help, the breath really helps to regulate the nervous system, which has a huge impact on pelvic floor function. So we're starting with educating about the breath, which is also going to help someone who's going through a role transition of becoming a mother, is probably going through a lot of sleep deprivation, you know, a lot of, you know, maybe social anxiety there. And so already we're starting to get a bit into treatment. So the lines of evaluation and treatment are already starting to become mixed together. 
The next 45 minutes is, are the hands-on experience. So this is where, you know, I'm weaving in potentially a toddler and or the baby, sort of whatever I'm using, you know, impromptu, the environment that's around me to see things like posture, right? I already mentioned the way that they're sitting in the chair when they're feeding, but even things like how they're bending over to pick up baby after changing, how they might be pushing the stroller out of the way. All of these things are part of my evaluation with how they're optimizing movement. I do an evaluation of their abdominal canister because the abs are part of our core and pelvic floor function. I'm doing an evaluation of their breathing, evaluating their pelvic floor. And we do have the option to do an internal exam. So that is a very informative way to really get a sense of those 14 muscles and their ability to just like every other muscle in the body move through full range of motion. So they need to be able to contract, they need to be able to relax, and they need to be able to extend for all of those activities that they're responsible for. So it gives us some information around how they can optimize their pelvic floor function even better. And then part of the experience is wrapping everything up, giving them information and talking in a really realistic way around their home exercise program. So we want to optimize the just right challenge, right? Mm -hmm. We, We don't want to overload them, especially a new parent. So I'm really being realistic and reasonable around setting, you know, is 10 minutes, three times a week. Okay. With you. Oh, you actually have help. You anticipate being able to carve out 30 minutes. Okay. Let's work with that. Right. So really making it work towards their life and even potentially doing some task analysis around being able to incorporate baby in some of this work, right? Mm. Or if it's needed, carve out some time maybe in the shower or in you know the bathroom to be able to do some very mindful activities around how to connect with the pelvic floor. So not taking any of that for granted, right? Being able to say, let's problem solve together how much time you have and where these activities can happen. And that's some of the most beautiful parts of our job because I think a lot of practitioners just take that part for granted. And it's a huge missed opportunity to have that carryover happen, which is a very big part of our clients achieving their goals. Mm -hmm. Were you private pay as you were doing these evals? Yes. I've always been private pay from the beginning. I'm really passionate about private pay because I think it gives an opportunity for therapists to operate in the most preeminent, valuable way they can. It really serves the client. And we actually see clients for less amount of time because we're able to reach and design a program that enables the client to meet their goals that much faster. It also enables us to give back to the community. So with private pay, you know, a lot of people think, okay, you just have the ability to serve those that can afford you. And the truth is it enables us to make conscientious decisions around that and take on pro bono cases, take on sliding scale cases. And so it enables us to have the most satisfaction both from being able to see the progress that we want to see with our clients, because there's no way I can do the work I do in a 20 minute time frame. Mm-hmm. That's I'm just beginning to rapport set at that point, right? And most insurance companies are going to really limit that time. So I'm seeing the satisfaction, the innate satisfaction of being able to really be with my client and give them the attention time they need for such a private part of the body. But I'm also able to give back and let let's face it, everyone deserves to have the ability to be seen by a public floor therapist. And so that becomes the the ability to be able to serve both, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that when you said that 90 minute eval, I was like, oh, that's so perfect and so needed. I know when I saw my public floor therapist, it was that 20 minute in a brick and mortar and I felt like we went right to the internal exam and I was just shaking like a leaf. I was so nervous, which really surprised me because I w- had been so excited for that visit. But I'm also like that also like compromised the information we were getting from that eval because I was so nervous and so That's tense. Right. Even though it wasn't ideal, I still found it really valuable for me just to be like, oh yeah, these are muscles that are under conscious control. Like I almost felt like I had forgotten that and I needed that experience, but how much better to have had that 90 minutes in the home. I can see how the information that you got would just be so much better than what my pelvic floor therapist got in the brick and mortar in 20 minutes. 
Yeah. Um, and Sarah, your experience is not alone. I remember when I went through training myself and it was PT. So, so I'm really passionate about being able to offer OT led education in this arena, which didn't exist when mm -hmm. I was getting started, but that PT led education, even though I knew what I was signing up for. So part of the educational experience was to be in a room of 50 people to take off our pants in that room of 50 people and be examined and be, you know, practice your internal exam. And even though I knew what I was going to do, even though I knew the exact time on my agenda, when I was going <laughs> to do it, right. Just like you were excited, you were ready yeah. to go into that office. It didn't matter. I mean, my heart was, I was letting, and I always tell my students that you need to go and have that experience from another pelvic floor therapist because it's going to inform you so much because mm -hmm. every single one of your clients, even if you have 90 minutes, are also so nervous. They're yeah. dying to be there. They need this help. They want this help. They're craving this help. But it's such an intimate, vulnerable feeling. Again, another reason why OTs are so really primed to do this work, but we all feel that way. And, and that will inform us to be the best public floor therapist we can be because we never want to take for granted just how sacred this experience is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So unique and obviously not something that um, people are used to or have experienced before lots of times. So once you do this eval and you gather all this information, what are the different treatments that you offer? That was something that stood out to me in the article was I felt like they kept saying how people weren't informed about treatments, but they also didn't mention a lot of the different treatment options. Like I still left the article feeling a little uncertain about what a pelvic floor therapist can actually do. So it's going to be different. We know whether you go to an OT or a PT or whether or not you even go from one OT to another. Part of the reason is, is the coursework that we get, first of all, it's all outside of graduate school, right? So mm -hmm. I didn't have one single lecture on this in school, as, as you know, since we were, yes. <laughs> we were colleagues together. And so all the work you do is self-selected once you graduate. And so we can take so many different paths with so many specialties mm -hmm. available to us, which leads to a bit of confusion because we're not all practicing the exact same way. I'm going to talk about in a few moments how that could be different, but that's the current state of affairs. And so that being said, it's hard to paint an experience in a box mm -hmm. when there are so many ways to get there. But I can speak to the way that we practice the functional pelvis, which really is involving their everyday life, right? I hinted at that a little bit when I talked about the evaluation. What that more specifically looks like is saying, okay, so you are leaking urine, unexpectedly called stress incontinence every single time you step up a curb. Okay. You are leaking urine every single time you pick up your new baby specifically from the floor, not from the changing table, which is higher up. So we're taking those specific activities and analyzing things like what their postural go-tos are for, let's say, bending down to pick baby up from the floor. How is that different than the way they're picking baby up from the changing table? Because those are all clues to what are potentially triggering their symptoms. So let's use a case, which I see a lot, which is breath holding. So we briefly mentioned how breath and the pelvic floor are companions to one another and really inform each other. So mom might be going down and picking up the baby from the floor. And that's a pretty high level activity. You're recruiting mm -hmm. a lot of muscles to do that. And so, especially after you've given birth. And so we may see breath holding in that time. And what that does is it pressurizes the abdominal canister, which is putting more pressure down on the pelvic floor, which is basically pushing urine out. Right. So, so when we analyze that activity, the one that's provoking the symptoms, and because I'm in their home, it makes it so much easier because I can see like the floor they're working with, which might be different than the floor in the clinic. Let's say all of these factors have an effect and an impact. And so we start to go, okay. So in this case, first of all, let's talk about how when you bend down, you don't have to go down completely on your knees. Maybe you can do a split leg, right? So, so one leg is down, the other leg is up, which is going to help that ability to maybe recruit your glutes as you're getting mm. up. Let's talk about the fact that let's exhale with exertion rather than holding your breath, which is going to optimize that pelvic floor recruitment. 
right? So, so we get into the practice of breaking that down into many steps so that it's not overwhelming and they really understand what I'm asking. And then having them do that rinse, wash, and repeat the 50 times every single day mm-hmm. they're doing that with baby. Now, that's a functional example, but I would say a less functional example, which is a proportion of the work we do, would be, let's say we found out that this particular client had overactive muscles. So those muscles are actually hypertonic. They're they're too recruited in an attempt to kind of stabilize. So every time mom goes down to pick up baby, that pelvic floor isn't yielding. It's really kind of holding on for dear life, which believe it or not, we see a lot And in that case, tightening the pelvic floor more is actually going to be counterproductive. So this would be something like being told to do your Kegels or something like that. And so in this case, the hands-on treatment would be helping the client to feel what a more relaxed pelvic floor would feel like. So they had that body awareness and that somatic experience to recognize what it felt like when they were voluntarily or involuntarily recruiting that pelvic floor in that really tight way, thinking it was going to help stabilize Mm -hmm. them. So we're giving them a different experience in their body so that they know they have options and that when they do that exhale, it's actually even more impactful because it's giving that pelvic floor a chance to recruit rather than just stay in that really stiff, tight place that perhaps it tended to default to. I love hearing about that because even though it's so different than the OT that I've practiced in the past, it also sounds really familiar because you're doing task analysis, you're doing a lot of education, you're thinking really big picture and whole body. I would never um, think as a patient to be like, oh, if I'm having pelvic floor issues to think about my breath and that you're able to just bring that whole body awareness, which I think is something that we're used to as OTs, but maybe most of us just have never applied in this way. 100%. And I think that, you know, I get a lot of career changers coming to pelvic floor Mm. therapy because once they learn how it's an incredibly motivated audience. It's an audience that really like they will, they're willing to do whatever it takes because this is, we read all of the embarrassing, the withdrawal from activities, the lack of desire to be intimate. All of these things are so, so incredibly part of our social fabric of a rich life that once they realize there's something they can do about it, they're so motivated. And the other thing that's so enriching about this work with OT specifically is the fact that no two sessions are the same. So I might have two evals back to back of new mothers that have urinary incontinence, but because this is so customized and specific to their goals, to their time availability, to everything about their life and the activities they participate in, I'm so intellectually stimulated because I have Mm. this ability to draw on all of the tools and to tailor make it to the person in front of me and to what's important to them. And so I'm, you know, 10 years in the making and I'm probably even more excited about this field than I was even the day I started. And wow, like what an incredible thing to be able to say. And what a gift for me because I want to be stimulated by my work. You know, I want to be emotionally engaged. So it's pretty awesome. (laughs) That's definitely a theme on the podcast when I feel like we're at the height of our OT and what that can provide. Not only is it great for the patients, it's so exhilarating for us as therapists and to be fully engaged like you get to be in your sessions is just such an honor and privilege to be doing this kind of work. I have a just big picture, I think two-part question I want to ask you. Like, I'm really sold on the need for pelvic floor therapy. I'm really sold on what OTs can be doing and the special lens that we bring. So my big picture question is, in the next five to 10 years, how can we, as an OT profession, be more prepared to offer these services? And based on reading this article, how can we also be just educating people more about these services? Yeah, what would you like to see change? Because I would say we have a ways to go. The public isn't educated and we as OTs aren't educated either. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. So number one, as I we're seeing more, but I want to see even more OT-led courses in this world. Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you how many courses I attended that were PT-led and all of my colleagues around me were PTs. Right. So that's Mm -hmm. changing 100%. That's changing. I want to see more of that. Yep. 
Some other things are continue to, you know, be in an advocacy realm. If it appeals you to publish in journals, you know, I'm have done that several times. It's incredibly fulfilling. Attending conferences and speaking about our role, not only in our own OT community, but even in conferences outside of just where OTs are. So building in the confidence within our own community, but also letting people out there know OTs can do this. Because the number of times when I tell people what I do and they just look at me and go, OT, this isn't just for PTs. I mean, I'm astounded at the number that I still hear that and my students still hear that. Mm -hmm. So we just need to get out there and keep showing up and and getting out of our own way and thinking that we're imposters because the truth is, I mean, look at our scope of practice. Almost everything in our scope of practice falls under the realm of pelvic floor therapy, toileting, right? Sexuality, dressing, I mean, everything, right? So it's like, it's all there. And we just need to continue to recognize that there's so much power in our approach. And even Mm -hmm. I'm seeing more PTs borrowing our language. They're talking about the biopsychosocial approach now as it pertains to pelvic floor therapy, right? So it's like, we need that confidence. And then I would say my personal goal is to have 10,000 occupational therapists in pelvic floor therapy by the year 2030. That is my personal goal. You know, we talked about that statistic by the year 2050, we were going to have 43 million people with pelvic floor dysfunction. They need us. They need Mm -hmm. us. And so that's my personal goal. And I'm going to continue to write OT-led courses. You know, I've got several at the time of this recording. And then my other key initiative is to have a pelvic health OT-specific certification. And my goal for that is to have 3,000 people certified in the next five years Hmm. so that we can continue to see just how being able to have continuity of approach through that OT lens so that it starts to become a little bit more systemized about what we can expect in a session, what clients can expect to have, you know, and again, all under that OT lens is going to make such an impact in not only the availability of these services, but also the clients need to ask for what they want for their ability to go. No, I'm asking for a prescription from you for pelvic floor occupational therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm so proud to hear such concrete goals from you. I feel like over and over on the podcast, we come across these topics where we're like, there's a huge need out there, like with RA, with dementia, and we see the need, we see as OTs that we have the ability to help, but there's this disconnect in how we get there. And so I'm so proud in this area that you've set goals for us. Like that's what we need as a profession to be like, this many people are going to be equipped to help these patients. We see the need. And just having one person say that and push us, I think makes a huge difference. And I would like to see that in more of our different practice areas, because I know just by you saying that, we're going to head in that direction, like the intention set, and we're going to go there. So I guess my final question then is if people are listening to this, they're feeling the call, what are next steps for people who haven't done anything with pelvic floor before? And then I also want to hear from you, what's like the minimal threshold of training to start seeing patients? Like I right now would not be like, I listened to Lindsay on this podcast. I'm ready to go do an internal exam. Like What's that minimal threshold to see Mm -hmm. these patients? Good questions, as usual. So some ways just to start understanding more of this world beyond, you know, the conversation we've had today. So I have a couple book recommendations and I'll start with those. So the one that first comes to mind is called Beyond Kegels, and that's written by Janet Hulme. And that is a very like overview of the pelvic floor that's not too heady, it's not too geeky, and it utilizes a lot of overflow. So it's really good for some of our elderly clients, you know, that we're not going to do hyper-specific work. And, you know, it starts to use inner thighs, outer thighs, in just like really basic ways that you don't need to be in a private treatment room. You could do it out, you know, in the hospital gym, you know, Mm -hmm. anywhere. And that's a great way. And then the next one is the bathroom key. 
That's a really nice book that goes into all of the types of incontinence there are, but specifically the title is going back to urge incontinence, which is this idea that every time you put a key in the door, you have this predictable urge that I have to pee, right? We know that that's physiologically impossible. So we know there's some work there that we can do. And that's exactly what we can do as pelvic floor therapists. So that's that's actually, I prefer this book a little bit more in the sense that it's going to go into a little bit more head knowledge around some of these conditions. And then the last one is called It's No Accident by Hodges. And that's one that's really written for the pediatric community, but there are so many concepts in there that can be Mm. applied to adults. And it's all about the role of constipation and bowel health, which is the topic of my next upcoming online course that, you know, and how we can really recognize how some of those bowel symptoms are actually informing our urinary symptoms. So that's Mm. just kind of a a smattering of books across different uh, populations that might be interesting. So the next thing would be, I have a free series called Pelvic Soma Hour, and you can literally just Google those words, but I think, Sarah, you also are going to have the link here in the show notes, and it's a free six-part series where I interview different pelvic floor practitioners and how they got into it and where they go to for inspiration and, you know, all the things you might be wondering yourself right now listening to this podcast. And this is an interview that was really set out to answer those questions. So that's a great way to get that. I also have a very prolific and supportive Facebook group called OTs for Pelvic Health that you can join. It's it's free. And every week I go on there and I do a, a live, basically continuing ed course. And then I have over 60 available as replays at the time of this recording. And I host uh, fellow experts in the field. I talk about business topics, diagnosis topics, case studies, you name it. And that's been so much fun. And then there's podcasts out there, right? So because again, we're talking about pelvic floor dysfunction after childbirth, the one podcast I'll reference is called To Birth and Beyond. And I believe it's a fitness trainer and a pelvic floor physiotherapist that hosts that one, but it weaves in a lot of practical content with you know their own personal stories. The thing is, as we've talked about several times already, occupational therapists are so skilled at building relationships. And so the thing is, we have this innate ability to potentially find out that our client is actually having pelvic floor issues when they may not bring it up to anyone else. Mm. We're spending the time with them. We're making them feel comfortable. Half the time we're already in the bathroom with them. Like Mm -hmm. it's, we're the perfect fit to let them know there's something they can do about it. Someone listening to this podcast may not be the person who they're going to see today or ever, Mm. but just being able to say there, there is a profession. There are practitioners who specialize in this it's completely, you know, non-invasive conservative care that doesn't involve taking a pill or surgery and it yeah. works, right? So mm-hmm. we are already talking about some of that stuff. And so I think if the very minimum, anyone listening to this can just know that they can bring that up more often based on our amazing skill sets as OTs, please do, because that's going to start that ripple effect of word of mouth, getting out there and letting people know they don't have to suffer in silence around yeah. these things. Yeah. If nothing else you should know the OTs in your area or your state who are practicing this to tell your friends about, to tell your clients about. I wanted to bring back to that question of like, what's the minimal threshold then of practicing? Like, do I need to go to a course to practice that pelvic floor exam? You mentioned that in this, it sounds like this is a practice area where maybe there's not... I want to say regulation, like I could start practicing now, but just based on your professional opinion, what's the minimum amount of training we should have to get into this? So I'm going to answer that question, but I want to start with saying that a lot of OTs are waiting for, you know, 50 courses under their belt to start Mm. seeing clients. And I just want to say that our best way of learning is through hands-on experience. Our clients teach us so much that head knowledge won't. And so I just want to say that um, while we need to be able to have sufficient experience and the right training, I also want to say there is such a thing as too much and to yeah. kind of you know tread that line between getting experience and getting that head knowledge and then getting out there and learning from your clients because that's going to be the best way. So you know, take an introductory course, 
There's some introductory courses out there. One is by Herman and Wallace called PF1, Pelvic Floor 1. And that's the one that I first took of a class of 50 and I was the only OT. And that's probably going to be your experience too mm-hmm. if you take it. It's PT-led, but it's it's great. There's a lab portion with it. So you, that's the one where I told you I, I took off my pants yes. and was shaking like a leaf. So that was that experience. And they say, once you go through that course, you know, it's a weekend long course, Monday, you can start seeing clients. The alternative to that would be the OT-led experience, which would be something like my course, OT Pioneers. And Laura Rowan is an OT who teaches a lab called PREMAT, P-R-M-A-T, that provides the lab experience. So I'm the theory and the lecture that you have lifelong access to. I also have mentorship calls associated with that course, but then the lab experience would be with Laura. And she's doing a lot of those in person now, in addition to some satellite options. So that would be the minimum. That would Mm -hmm. be the minimum. And then, you know, continuing to surround yourself with people around you that are lifelong learners so that you can continue to stay current because this field is ever-changing. New research is coming out all the time. And that's a really important part of being able to stay current. Again, all with the caveat is don't um, look for this perfect time, right? You got to get out there. And after you take that intro course, start seeing more clients and then work your way through my certification, which is you know going to level the playing field and start to help everyone have a, you know, a real recognition of how OTs are different and how this approach can really enhance our clients' experience. Yeah, I say this not just because I'm talking to you and feel a bias towards uh, just because I know you, but yeah, I see the need for a standardization of care just to give OTs the confidence that they have that base knowledge that they need and then for clients to start to recognize this is what an OT approach looks like. Exactly. I can't believe it, but we're almost at the end of our time today. And I really wanted to get through our rapid fire questions just to learn a little bit more about you and what your practice looks like. Are you up for that? I'm ready. Let's do it. What is the first sentence that you usually say to a client? (laughs) So I say some variation of, I'm a different pelvic floor therapist. Because you are the detective to your own body, and I'm just here to help you find the map. Well, that's awesome. What is the last thing that you usually say to a client at the end of a treatment session? So one of the reasons OTs are so good at pelvic floor therapy is because we're masters of task analysis. And this is a part of the body that needs strengthening and lengthening, and you're not going to get that at a gym. So most of our sessions focus uh, on the activities that you do every day. You've, you've seen that with my session today, such as picking up baby, so that you can really implement how to build a strong, resilient core without doing thousands of Kegels. And so we're going to be mindful and we're going to be connected to the breath whenever you're doing these activities that you do every single day, because it's the foundation of our work. What are some of your favorite assessments to do? Right now, I would say the Australian pelvic floor questionnaire, the positive and negative affect schedule, and the context sensitivity index. I'll link to all those in our show notes and pull in information about them. And what's your favorite OT intervention to deliver? I love doing postural analysis and ways to impact ADLs, nursing, waiting for the tea kettle to heat up, or even brushing your teeth at the sink and how that will eventually impact the core and pelvic floor. Hmm. What's something you've read recently that has impacted your OT practice? It's a book called ACT, A-C-T, On Your Business, which ACT is something a lot of us as OTs are familiar with. And it's about meaning, mindset, and mindfulness. And I believe the author's name is Mc. McDonald, McDowell. I'll find it and link to it. That sounds awesome. And finally, Lindsay, what or how do you hope patients feel after their initial visit with you? Empowered, optimistic, and hopeful. Hmm. Well, I feel really jazzed after this conversation and excited for our profession and thankful for what you're bringing to it. Thank you for being with us today. And I hope that we have continued conversation in the future. 
I have no doubt we will. And I'm thrilled to do so. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Wow, you all, not only did this episode make me excited about OT and pelvic health, it just really gave me a vision of what it looks like for OTs to see a public health issue like this and mobilize and address it. Lindsay mentioned so many great resources, so I really encourage you to stop by the podcast landing page where we'll have links to everything that she mentioned. And for members of the OT Potential Club, we'll have the assessments logged in our OT assessment search. And you'll also find a written breakdown of the research where you can discuss it and share your own thoughts and questions. And finally, if you are interested in earning a certificate for your time today, all you have to do is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. And as always, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you again next time.